Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 19 will be our sermon text for this morning. We've been working through uh, Genesis week after week for a number of months now, and uh, this morning we come to chapter 19, the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to read, uh, actually, so the, the sermon text is, is uh, verses 1 through 16, but I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, at least through uh, verse 29 to get kind of the whole story. Um, but before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of the promised land. Uh, we thank you for the resurrection, uh, for the hope of the new creation, for dwelling with you forever uh, in a renewed world. And uh, we pray that you would ever increase our hope for that day, uh, cause us to desire it, delight in it, and uh, move toward it as pilgrims in a strange land. Uh, be with us now as we open your word. We pray that you would teach us from it. Uh, that you, by your Spirit, would uh, lead us into understanding, uh, into greater repentance, faith, and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be spared. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is discomforting. Uh, There's really no other way to tell it. Uh, the, The goal of preaching has been described as to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Well, there's only a small amount of comfort on the surface of these verses, at least. Uh, These are verses that uh, afflict, that challenge us. Uh, In some ways, if you don't squirm in your seat a little, at least, you're probably not paying attention. Our text this morning is, is one of the prototypical judgments in Scripture. God evaluates the behavior of Sodom. He finds it wicked, and he writes that wrong by way of judgment. Here we have an historical act, God judged Sodom, Uh, but throughout the Bible, this historical act is taken as a warning. As God judged Sodom, so he will judge the whole earth. There will come a day when the value of our actions, our days, our lives will be laid bare. And what are we to do in light of that day? Now, often a a caricature of Christianity is that all we ever do is talk about judgment. Uh, But that doesn't mean we can avoid the topic. Judgment is necessary, if for no other reason, uh, because oppression and abuse are wrong. Uh, If you remember from last week, uh, there had come up an outcry against Sodom. This was a place where the weak and the helpless were abused and misused. And God had heard that outcry, and he was going to step in to do something about it. Judgment is necessary, right? Someone must stand up and say, this is wrong, no longer. But judgment is necessary for another reason. Uh, We need to remember that there is something more important than judgment, which is grace. The Bible teaches that God is gracious and forgiving. And of course, we all like to talk about forgiveness, but forgiveness only makes sense in light of the threat of judgment. 
Forgiveness means I have broken a standard. I, I owe a debt as a result. I face the consequences of my actions, but I can be forgiven for that wrong, released of that debt. Wrongdoing in the world cries out for a just response, and the very concept of mercy implies that response and shows that there is a way of escape. And so judgment is necessary in the face of oppression and as the context for mercy. It's helpful to ask as we come to this story, what does this story, the story of Sodom, have to do with the rest of Abraham's story? I mean, we have been watching as God has made promises to Abraham, as Abraham has struggled to believe, as God has slowly fulfilled these promises, even as he pointed Abraham forward to a greater fulfillment to come. The story of Sodom seems a little bit, at least, like an interruption. But remember who the first readers of Genesis were. The first readers of this book were the children of Abraham shortly after they left Egypt. What is this story telling them? Well, God has promised to bless the nations through Abraham and his seed. We've seen that again and again. But that blessing is not indiscriminate, uh, nor does it do away with personal responsibility. Each character in this story responds to the coming judgment in a different way, and their actions have consequences. God will bless the nations through Abraham's seed, but each individual is responsible for the choices that they make. And yet there's more, because Lot's coming out of Sodom explicitly at points echoes Israel's coming out of Egypt. But Lot's story doesn't end well. And so the moral of the story for Israel is just because you've been brought out, out of Egypt doesn't mean things will end well. A change of physical location is not enough. Uh, what Lot needed, what Israel needed, what we all need is a change of heart. And so Moses would later call Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. And James in the New Testament exhorts God's people, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, the, the application of this passage and passages like this is simply repent, uh, flee the wrath to come, and find refuge in the seed of Abraham through whom God will bless the nations. Of course, that's not what we see people in the story doing. Uh, with respect to judgment, the men of Sodom are oblivious. Uh, Lot's sons-in-law are incredulous. And Lot himself is indecisive. And Paul gives us an interpretive principle in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Speaking of Israel's life in the wilderness, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And it's true, right? That the people in this story are good examples of what not to do. And so how ought we to respond to the coming judgment? This is what we're going to see in this passage this morning. How ought we to respond to that coming day? The day of judgment is real, therefore know it is coming, unlike the men of Sodom. Uh, take it seriously, unlike Lot's sons-in-law, and choose to run, something which Lot himself was slow to do. Now, this is, I think, for many, a familiar story, but we should go over the basics, right? God came to Abraham back in chapter 18 and told him he was going to investigate the wickedness of Sodom. He sent two angels so that whatever they found would be confirmed on the evidence of two witnesses. The two angels come to Sodom at night as it's getting dark, and Lot's Abraham, uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is sitting in the city gate. 
And this perhaps implies Lot is respected or even has become a city official because the city gate was where official transactions took place and where judgments were made. It was the the town hall of the ancient Near Eastern city, so to speak. And yet Lot appears to be alone in the city gate. Where are the other elders of Sodom? Maybe Lot is there because he's the only one who cares if justice is done in this city. Well, Lot, much like Abraham in chapter 18, greets his visitors and offers them hospitality. In fact, he insists. He seems to know what happens at Sodom at night, and he wants to hurry his visitors off the street. Lot prepares a feast. Uh, The word means something lavish, like uh, for a wedding or a birthday party, though the only thing mentioned is unleavened bread, like Israel ate the night they escaped God's judgment on Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. Well, at this point, the men of Sodom, all the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man, the writer insists, surround the house. Now, uh, some commentators have suggested that this is hyperbole, and that could perhaps be true, but uh, there's a point to it. It's instructive. You see, God had promised to spare the city if there were 10 righteous people found. And the writer wants us to know there is not one. Every single man in the city surrounds the house. Every single man in the city is wicked. And they call into Lot in verse 5, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, uh, again, if it's not obvious, the writer is telling us that this this city is wicked. And the question is, why? Uh, What is the sin of Sodom and why is it so bad? Uh, Believe it or not, there's a debate about this. Um, And and typically, there are two sides, right? Typically, uh, conservatives want to say, well, the sin of Sodom is homosexuality. Homosexuality is wrong. Uh, Homosexuality is prevalent in our culture. The conclusion, we're living in a modern-day Sodom. Uh, People, uh, other folks within uh, the Christian church often want to say, the sin of Sodom is not homosexuality, but inhospitality. Uh, There was a lack of hospitality that they showed to their guests, Of course, I want to say, why are we choosing between these two? The text, I think, does not choose between the two. Uh, The verse uh, often appealed to in order to say that the sin of Sodom is inhospitality, uh, not homosexuality, is Ezekiel 16, 49, uh, where we are told, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. You see right there, right, that Sodom did not aid the poor and needy. They didn't help those in need. They were inhospitable. And, of course, that's true. But if you keep reading, the next verse in Ezekiel says, They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Well, what what was their abomination? The word abomination throughout the Old Testament most often refers to either idolatry or sexual immorality as it does almost exclusively, for instance, in the other books of Moses. Of course, we don't have to choose when it comes to Sodom's sin, right? What makes the sin of Sodom so grievous is that it is multifaceted. Uh, The sin of Sodom is is multilayered. That's what makes it so bad. Some sins are are worse than others, of course. Uh, Jesus said to Pilate that the one who delivered him over to him had the worse sin, John 19, 11. In Ezekiel, God shows Ezekiel the abominations of Israel, and then he says, you will see even greater abominations. 
What makes any given sin worse than any other? Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 151, lists four uh, things, giving dozens of examples. Uh, so they, they list things like, well, who is the one committing the sin? Uh, my sin would be worse than yours because I'm a pastor. It's true. Any father's sin would be worse than his children because he is to set an example for them in his manner of life. Or uh, not just who is the one committing the sin, who's the one being sinned against? Uh, are you sinning against God directly in some way, father, son, or spirit? Are you sinning against one person or many people? Uh, people to whom you owe respect and honor? Uh, people who should be under your care and protection? And what is the nature and quality of the sin? Is it breaking an express commandment? Does it cause scandal? Is it against the express teaching of the church? Is it deliberate or willful or presumptuous, malicious, frequent, obstinate, and so on? What are the circumstances and time uh, of time and place? You, you get the point, right? All sin is bad, and some sins are worse. And so think about the layers of sin here. The men of Sodom want to violate someone sexually. A group of them want to violate someone sexually. A group of them want to violate someone sexually in a way that is forbidden, even if it was consensual. A group of them want to violate someone sexually in a way that is forbidden, even if it was consensual. Someone who should be under their care as a guest in their town. And so you have homosexuality, which is a sin against nature, a sin against God's design, against creation. You have rape, a sin against your neighbor, a person created in the image of God, you're doing violence to them, harm to them. It's, it's gang rape, right? An even greater sin because of the greater harm it does to, to the individual because you're joining others in sin, leading others into sin, justifying others by joining them in sin. And yet one of the greatest kinds of sins are, are those committed by people in positions of power. Uh, to be given power and authority by God and to misuse that is a great sin. God gives us power and authority that we might give of ourselves to serve others. When we use that power and authority to take from others to serve self, that is the most heinous of sins because it is antithetical to the gospel. Right? In the gospel, Christ comes as the one who has all power and authority, and he comes to give of himself for the good of those in need. And so to misuse power is to deny the gospel with our actions. Well, Abraham in chapter 18, you remember, was, was shown to be a righteous man who offered hospitality to the strangers in his midst, who gave of himself to serve the needs of others. But these men went to violate the strangers in their midst, to take from others, to serve their own sinful desires. Well, Lot, at this point, goes out to try to dissuade them. It's a bit of a gutsy move, actually. He, he goes out, he shuts the door Behind him, he is protecting his guests from the unruly mob. He pleads with the men in verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And then things go south for Sodom, or for Lot. Uh, in place of his guests, Lot offers his daughters. It was a wicked thing to do. It was no less wicked in that day than it is today. You can't excuse Lot's behavior in any way. This is what happens when you take even a good thing, hospitality at this point, and turn it into an ultimate thing. Lot wants to protect his guests. That's noble, but he wants to do that in a wicked way. And when you, uh, when you elevate a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, you end up sinning against God because you overvalue something in the world and undervalue God and his character. 
The men of Sodom want nothing of it, which likely is meant just to show how twisted their hearts are. And while Lot addressed them as brothers in verse 7, they talk about Lot as an immigrant who now thinks he's the judge, and they threaten to treat Lot worst of all. At this point, the men, the two angels, grab Lot and pull him inside and shut the door. And they strike the men with blindness. Uh, Strike there is the same word used when we are told that God strikes Egypt with ten plagues. They they then wear themselves out groping for the door, which again, that, that phrase wear out is the same word for the Egyptians growing weary of drinking from the Nile River once it was turned to blood. Their blindness reminds us of the plague of the darkness, uh, which blinded the Egyptians, but not Israel. So first you have this feast of unleavened bread, and now you have a plague that that wearies and blinds God's enemies. This is Lot's exodus, or at least a parody of the exodus. And next, the angels reveal their plan to Lot. They tell him, get anyone he cares about out of the city, because they are about to destroy it. It really is as wicked as the outcry said. Justice has been satisfied. Uh, The evidence is even now groping around at the door. Well, this brings us then to our our first point, believe it or not, uh, that the day of judgment is real. And so one, know it is coming. Uh, The men of Sodom don't know. Uh, They are ignorant, ignorant, oblivious, unsuspecting. Uh, This is the way uh, Jesus talks about this story in Luke 17. He says, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see what Jesus is saying? Uh, These wicked men had no idea what was coming. If they did, would they be outside Lot's door at that moment? Life was going on as usual. They were grabbing coffee with friends. They were hanging out at the movies. They were scrolling through social media, just regular stuff. And suddenly, judgment came. The first point is simple, right? Don't be like the men of Sodom. Don't be ignorant of what is coming. Some Christians want to believe in Jesus but downplay the whole judgment thing. But Jesus spoke more about the coming judgment than anyone. Many of Jesus' parables are about the coming judgment. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. They grow together now, but at the harvest, the wheat will be gathered into the barn. The weeds will be burned. The parable of the catch of fish. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it is full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells a story of servants, the blessed servant whose master finds him faithfully serving when he arrives, and the wicked servant whose master finds him beating his fellow servants. And Jesus says about them in Matthew 24, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus speaks about people who are not ready for a wedding feast, who try to come late and are not allowed to enter. In the parable of the talents, Jesus talks about a day of reckoning when the master will come and hold his servants accountable for how they used his gifts while he was away. He tells of the day when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will come in his glory and separate the sheep from the goats 
Some will go into eternal punishment and some to eternal life. The point is that the person in the Bible who most wanted us to get ready for the day of judgment, the one who was most concerned to tell us about it, the one who taught the most on it was Jesus himself. To believe in Jesus is to believe in a coming judgment. The day of judgment is real. One, no, it is coming. Two, take it seriously. You know, when I lived in Philly, at any given time, you could find a homeless man somewhere in the city holding up a sign that said something like, the end is near. And of course, that has become such a part of culture that you can find dozens of comic strips playing off that theme. It's, it's become a, a trope, a cliche, a joke. We don't expect judgment to come. And anyone who tells us it is coming, we think, might have a few screws loose or perhaps is a member of a cult or both. Things were no different in Lot's day. Lot goes out to his sons-in-law. It's not clear whether these are men married to other daughters of Lot or betrothed to the two unmarried daughters in his house. The wording could mean either. It doesn't really matter. But Lot goes out to these men and says in verse 14, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. The end is near. And of course, it was. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking. Uh, They think he's a lunatic or delirious or confused. Look at old Lot. He's off his rocker. Oh, Lot, sleep it off. You'll feel better in the morning. Or perhaps they think it's a practical joke. Whatever the case, they, they don't take Lot seriously. They are indifferent to the idea of the coming judgment. Now, again, remember why the Sodom story is here. Here we are in the middle of a story of God fulfilling his promises through Abraham, of blessing, of God blessing the nations through Abraham. God is going to bless the nations through Abraham, and then Sodom is destroyed. Why? God will bless all nations through Abraham, but not every individual. God's blessing to the nations through Abraham does not negate individual responsibility. Abraham prayed for Sodom, but in the end, each individual in Sodom is responsible for his own actions. Lot's sons-in-law have the chance to run. They are told what is going to happen, but they choose to ignore it. They choose to think it's a joke. They don't take it seriously. And Jesus, in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tells us a judgment is coming, a reckoning, a divine evaluation. Do you believe him? And do you think Jesus is just one more crazy person holding a sign? Or are you ready to take him seriously? You've got to decide if you think Jesus is a nut or not. Are you going to respond to Jesus the way these men respond to Lot? Oh, you can't be serious, Jesus. Ha ha, final judgment. Sure, Jesus, sure. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's no judgment to come, we say. But Sodom is a preview. Judgments have taken place in the past. The exile from Eden, the flood in Noah's day, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of the Canaanites, the Babylonian exile, the siege of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple— and then the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple again. Those repeated judgments are meant to wake us up. God has judged and he will judge again. God takes sin seriously. 
And if that is any way unclear, just look to the cross. The cross is the supreme display of God's mercy, but it is also the supreme display of God's justice. God takes sin seriously. In order to show mercy and forgive his people, he could not, because of his own character, because of his righteousness, because he is just, he could not simply overlook sin. And so God poured out his just punishment for sin on Sodom, on his son at the cross. Perhaps the reason Jesus talked more about the coming judgment than anyone is because Jesus, of all people, understood what that judgment would be like. He went to the cross. He suffered the Father's wrath against sin. He faced the punishment we deserve. If you are ever tempted to take judgment lightly, just look to the cross and be reminded that God takes it deadly seriously. The day of judgment is real. Know it is coming. Take sin seriously. And third and finally, choose to run. Uh, Lot is a, a sad picture of gradual compromise. Uh, compromise that led to moral weakness and indecision. Uh, earlier in the story, all we knew of Lot was that he was Abraham's nephew. He traveled with his uncle. He was blessed with his uncle. His flocks and herds were so great, he and his uncle were forced to separate. And that is where things turned south. Lot began to set his sights on worldly prosperity. See, sometimes worldly prosperity tempts us to focus on further worldly prosperity. Rather than defer to his elder, Lot chose the best land for himself, despite the fact that the residents were wicked. He chose physical good over moral good. First, he settled near Sodom. Then he settled in Sodom. Finally, he took up a leadership role within Sodom so that when we find him in Genesis 19, he is sitting in the gate, the place of judgment. Fitting, because this is a story of judgment, and ironic because clearly Lot's judgment is lacking. And commentators are divided on how to interpret Lot's first few actions in the story. Some compare Lot's hospitality to Abraham's favorably. A Lot, too, goes out to meet his guests, bows down, invites them in, and makes a meal. But others emphasize the differences. Lot doesn't appear to be in a hurry. He's not running and rushing as Abraham did. The only food mentioned is unleavened bread. Where's the water and the calf and the curds and the milk? It's hard to say whether Lot is being compared favorably with Abraham or unfavorably. Are we meant to see continuity or contrast between these two men? Both are, are sitting in the, uh, at the opening to their respective homes when we meet them, but Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent, a pilgrim headed toward his heavenly home, and Lot is in the gate of the city, the wicked city, Sodom. Lot, on the one hand, is related to Abraham and apparently covenantally accepted because of Abraham. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Lot has also settled in Sodom. He has given up the pilgrim life and has compromised with the city of destruction. That becomes abundantly clear when Lot offers up his daughters as a kind of substitute sacrifice in place of his guests. Right? The values of this age, in this case hospitality, good in and of itself, but it has blinded Lot to what is truly important. Lot has ceased to live as a pilgrim. And yet the men of Sodom know. Uh, they say in verse 9, this fellow came to sojourn. And they know he doesn't belong, no matter how hard he tries to fit in. 
Like, like the demons who know Jesus in the Gospels, right? The world knows those who belong to Jesus and will reject us because it rejected him. And the most striking thing about Lot, of course, is what we are told about him in the New Testament. Even here in, in Genesis, uh, God blesses Lot, though he doesn't seem much different from the men of Sodom. But in 2 Peter 2, the New Testament calls him righteous. How could that be? Well, on the one hand, Lot is covenantally righteous, meaning Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Apparently, that was true of Lot as well. His faith may have been weak. Despite the, the evident weakness of his faith, Lot is righteous by faith. He believes the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. He's not intrinsically righteous. That's obvious. No one is righteous. No, not one. But Lot, most of all, we've seen his compromise in this story. But salvation is by grace through faith. We are, we are counted as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, even Lot. A Lot isn't much different from the Sodomites. He has compromised with the world, but they are judged while Lot is saved. Why? Lot is counted righteous by faith. Of course, Lot is not only covenantally righteous, he's also comparatively righteous. And here, here's what the New Testament actually says, 2 Peter 2, 6 through 9. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter calls Lot righteous three times and godly once. Peter tells us something not mentioned in Genesis, that, that Lot was distressed by the sexual immorality of Sodom day after day. Lot did seek to be different than the men of Sodom. Don't do this wicked thing, he exhorted them. And yet he was also significantly compromised, offering his daughters, getting drunk at the end of the chapter, we'll see next week, and it would seem he didn't teach his daughters to walk in the way of the Lord. I actually take some level of comfort in Lot's righteousness. I hope I would never do anything as wicked as Lot in this chapter, but I know my personal righteousness is imperfect, tainted, sinful, fallen, weak. So I hope in the righteousness of Christ, that God will declare me righteous as he declared Lot righteous, as he declared Sarah believing in Hebrews 11, 11, as he declared Abraham unwavering in faith in Romans 4.20. In fact, that is the only hope for any of us, right? Not that we are righteous, not that we're any different from the men of Sodom in ourselves, but that we can be declared righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus. Abraham is counted righteous and Lot is counted righteous because Jesus actually is righteous and he offers us his righteousness to all who trust in him. Well, if you decide to trust Jesus, if you decide to listen to him and take him seriously, when it comes to judgment, the question is, okay, what now? Lot, apparently, after hearing the angelic warning, just sat around at home. Perhaps he even fell asleep because the angels urge him, saying in verse 15, get up. They basically say, look, this is your last shot, Lot. Take your wife and the two daughters that are here and get out. 
Otherwise, you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. That is, if, if, if you throw your lot in with Sodom, no pun intended, you will suffer Lotum's, uh, Sodom's fate. But what does Lot do? In verse 16, he lingered. It's ludicrous, really, right? Here are two angels who blinded, blinded an entire city's worth of men the night before who were our warning Lot of judgment, telling him to flee, but he doesn't move. It's interesting because as you follow Lot's story, you'll notice his agency slowly deteriorates. In chapter 13, he, he made the decision to live in Sodom. He chose the land that looked the best. He walked by sight and not by faith. He chose to live first near and then in the wicked city. But it seems that decision has hamstrung him. Uh, there is a point to be made here that, that decisions for sin enslave us until like addicts, our agency, our ability to choose seems lost. Why did Lot wait? Why the indecision? Is it that he's made so many bad decisions before that it's now hard to make a good one? Is he wrestling with whether he believes the angels? Is he having trouble leaving Sodom? I mean, it's his home after all. He left Ur so many years ago to start over in Canaan. Does he really wanna start over again? Well, finally, the angels seize them and literally drag them out of Sodom. Verse 16 says, the Lord being merciful to them. Again, I ask, what does this have to do with the Abraham story? Here, here's the point in context. God will bless all nations on account of Abraham, but to receive God's blessing to and through Abraham, we must flee the city of destruction. God will bless the nations on account of Abraham. God will bless those who bless Abraham, and all nations will be blessed in him. That's the promise beginning in Genesis chapter 12. But again, that doesn't mean that God will bless every individual. So what must we do to be saved? What do we have to do to be blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith? One way of answering that question is run. Uh, Abraham was a pilgrim. He, he lived as a pilgrim in the promised land. He had his eyes on the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. Abraham was headed toward the heavenly promised land. Lot had settled in Sodom. He had gotten off course. The Abrahamic promises are, for, are not for the citizens of this age, but for the citizens of the age to come, those who are pilgrims and strangers here and now. Of course, the, the, the million-dollar question is, what does it mean to flee the city of destruction today? What, is it, what does it mean to flee Sodom, to become a pilgrim and stranger here and now? First, it's important to say what it doesn't mean. Uh, it, it doesn't mean you have to leave the big city move into a rural area, avoid the hustle and bustle of urban life. This whole present age is the city of destruction. This world is coming to an end. You, you can't get out of it physically. It's not a matter of changing your zip code. In fact, we'll see next week with Lot, changing his zip code wasn't enough. Just because you have been brought out of Egypt doesn't mean things will end well. Just because you look religious on the outside, just because you go to church, even outwardly avoid immorality, those things are not enough. You've got to run to Jesus, flee from sin and into the arms of the Savior. To flee Sodom is not about geography. It's about repentance and faith. Are you willing to leave behind your life of sin and find refuge in Jesus? And not just as a one-time thing. Oh, yeah, I did that, you know, 20 years ago. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. No, right? Are you willing to do that daily, turning from sin and choosing Jesus? Not seeking to save your present life, but being willing to lose it for Jesus' sake, knowing only then will you find it.
like Lot, you will be saved, not because you're better than, but because of your relation to Abraham by blood, uh, not by the blood in your veins, but by the shed blood at the cross. Jesus bore judgment at the cross that we might avoid Sodom's fate. Run to him. Uh, the day of judgment is real. Know it's coming. Take it seriously and choose to run. Flee sin and the city of destruction and find refuge in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, who came to bless the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, to read of judgment is hard and scary and uncomfortable, but I pray that you would help us to know it and take it seriously and then turn, turn from sin and to our Savior Jesus day by day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.